Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jennifer Krem, a veteran casting director who's worked on everything from Reaper and Ray Donovan to Chaos Walking and the new Apple TV Plus series Lessons in Chemistry. She makes her writing and directing debut this week with Sick Girl, a comedy drama starring Nino Dobrev as a slightly lost soul who realizes her lifelong besties are moving on with their lives, so she lies about having cancer to keep the group together. It's in theaters in the U.S. and available on demand across North America this Friday, October 20th. Jennifer picked Reality Bites, the 1994 comedy written by Helen Childress and directed by Ben Stiller that was marketed as the defining movie about Gen X, starring Winona Ryder as Lelena Pierce, a young woman freshly out of college trying to figure out what to do with her life while her friends, played by Ethan Hawke, Janine Garofalo, and Steve Zahn, struggle with the same transition. Michael, a television executive played by Stiller, offers Lelena a path to success and a stable relationship, which Hawke's character Troy insists would be selling out. But what does selling out mean when no one's giving you the chance to buy in? This is someone else's movie. You know, I, I didn't give it a lot of thought. Um, when when I was asked, it was immediately the first thing that came to my head. I think um, it it has, I think it's just a movie that meant a lot to me. I feel like when when whatever you see in your formative years are kind of always those movies that stick with you forever. And I saw this when I was 15 and um, I just, I, I feel like it, It for me, I, I know that it was a studio film, but for me at the time, it felt very indie. Um, I didn't realize until later. It wasn't like the studio, any of the studio films I had experienced before. And it kind of eased me into this whole new world of, of films and introduced me to this, you know, films that felt very um adult but also that I could relate to and I think you know it, it's just a movie it, it, it I rewatched it again last night getting ready for this and uh it's funny to see like you know obviously there are a lot of flaws that you don't see as far as mostly I feel like with Troy I was like man he's a real dick which I didn't <laughs> realize like you know when I was 15 but I still I I I just think it's a really great movie about about you know, friendship and trying to figure out who you are in your early 20s. And it just has a really special place in my in my heart. Yeah, I I was a little bit older. I think I would have been 23 when it came out. And, you know, the Tarantino thing had already started and and Clerks was just around the corner. It, just, it feels like it's right in the middle of that place where everything was possible, both in studio and in indie films. And it does it does feel like it's straddling the two in a weird way, even though you know, it's as corporate as they come. It's a it's a universal picture, and it was originally commissioned by TriStar, and then it went into turnaround, and there's this whole thing behind it. But what I see now when I revisited it is, Jesus, everybody in this became somebody. Like, the casting is incredible, right. which I suppose is another reason that maybe it's, it's hung around with you. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I feel like even at the time, um, they at least – Janine Garofalo, Winona Ryder, uh, Ethan Hawke, and Ben Stiller all felt very big to me. Mm -hmm. But I especially think it's um, interesting what Steve Zahn has, what his career has turned into since this movie. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's the casting is pretty flawless. I did read something once that Parker Posey was considered for... um, 
the Vicky role, which I, I mean, I don't, I love Janine Garofalo in this, but I was like, Parker Posey's pretty amazing. She, she could have been interesting too, but um, yeah, I think the casting's top notch for sure. Even some of the little cameos. Oh yeah. It's wall to wall. Um, and I guess part yeah. of that is Ben Stiller's reach as a, as a showbiz kid, right? Like he knew everybody. Um, yeah. His mom's in it of for course. like 30 seconds. <laughs> like a lucky charm. I think she shows up in, um, Oh, the Walter Mitty film, the, um, Oh, right, right, right. The, this, yeah, I didn't actually didn't see that. I have to admit, but <laughs> it, it's an interesting, I'll, I'll fight for it. I think it's, it was underrated for what he tried to do at the time. And I think as a director, that's his, that's his problem that, um, he identified himself so quickly as a comic engine with the Ben Stiller show and, and a parodist that when he tries to be sincere or when he makes something sincere, rather, no one believes him. Right. And I think, I think he's so seen as a comedic actor to people that they probably just assume that's what he's making. Yeah. And his biggest hits have been the broadest stuff, right? Tropic Thunder and Zoolander. But with, with Reality Bites, you genuinely got the sense, or at least I did at the time, that he's not on his own character's side. Like he's, that was his way in, apparently. Um, Helen Childress talks about writing the script in, um, in a number of interviews. Uh, 20 odd years later, there was a, there's sort of a cycle of rediscovery. Soraya Roberts uh, wrote a great piece for the Atlantic about how Stiller's career took off, but Childress is sort of stalled. Uh, she never stopped working. She was writing for years, but nothing got made. Meanwhile, Ben Stiller became Ben Stiller. The thing I didn't know was that, that Stiller came up with his character effectively as a way in for himself, as not as an actor, but as a filmmaker. He needed to, to have a, a perspective that wasn't in the script for him, as he put it, because the story was originally much more about just um, Ryder's character and her friend circle. And so he came up with this interloper who is perceived as such, right? The film's not on his side. No. He's definitely very square compared to the rest of them. So it is it is interesting that he chose to play like you'd think he'd go for the cooler character. I mean, like I said, with like, you know, now as an adult, when I look back and watch it, I'm like, well, she clearly should have ended up with Ben Stiller's character. He's the kind one. But, you know, obviously, when you're watching that in your like early 20s, everyone's like, duh, Ethan Hawke, like Ben Stiller looks like, you know, such a such a nerd and such a corporate sellout compared to the rest of them. So I think that was very bold and and brave on his part that he chose to play that part. Yeah, his media savviness comes in there as well, just because like Michael is clearly trying to help her and she's not hearing him. But then in the end, the thing that he makes of her footage is unwatchable. I mean, it is sort of what right. what the real world would become, which is another weird prophetic moment in that in that movie. And even at the end when they show um, the, at the very end, it's like a postscript. They have what he, his own directing, and he's definitely making fun of himself with that, which I thought was really funny, where he's kind of trying, you could tell he's trying to like capture her voice, but it's clearly very much through his lens. <laughs> yeah, it's a much smarter film than people gave it credit for at the time. Some people, there were some positive reviews and, and it, it found its audience. It wasn't a massive hit, but it did okay. And then it hit cable and it never really went away to the point where Peacock was apparently going to try to do a television series adaptation, like a reboot that is still set in the 90s. Did you hear about this? I'm, I'm still not sure I hallucinated it. Uh, no, I didn't hear about that. I feel like... I, I, 
I'm not a huge fan of when of one that's done to begin with, but I feel like part of the draw of the movie is the characters and the actors. So for me, that would be very, that'd be very, I don't know, that'd be very strange. I guess because I could see loosely based on, but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it feels like such a it feels like such a, a a time capsule of a specific period that's done so well. I'm like, I don't know why people have to mess with things all the time. Oh, it's the curse of IP, right? I mean, everybody thinks they want to see this stuff regurgitated and, and remade, but yeah, it's it's so analog in its way that I just don't even see the point of having a version of it for a new generation. That the, the the kids today, as you know, you know, could they relate to it? It almost feels like a movie that was made like specifically for like. It's almost it almost feels like a movie that was made to look like. I'm trying to I'm trying to articulate like a dazed and confused, which wasn't made in the 70s, but is such a feels so like this feels so 90s. It's almost like how did they? It's like they kind of knew in advance what they were trying to do. Like they so like got the zeitgeist completely right. It's kind of watching it as bananas. It's a period piece of itself. I know what you mean. Right. Exa- yes, exactly. Yes. That's very, that's very much better put than I was, <laughs> than I was saying. Yes, exactly. It's, and it's fascinating to realize too, when you're watching it that now, I mean, from the, like, from the perspective of a, 20 odd years, Jesus, no, 30 years later, but also being an adult, you know, like fully formed. I'm, I'm in my fifties now. And it's just like, oh yeah, Ethan Hawke is giving an incredibly good performance as someone who is a terrible self-centered person. And the, and the movie gets it, Stiller gets it, but the audience refused. They absolutely rejected it. And then there were these weird stories about how uh, how Hawk didn't bathe or something. There was a little, there was this weird little attempt of the press machinery, the, the news media at the time trying to turn him into a bad boy. And Ethan Hawk is so not interested in that and never has been. Right. But because he played this character and did it so well, there was this weird unspoken assumption, well, he's not a good enough actor. That must've been really him. And it's just like, well, the look is deliberate and the attitude is deliberate, but yeah, Troy is a terrible person. Yeah, I, for me, watching it now, like, of course, when I was 15, I thought he was the hottest thing ever and was completely attracted to him as um, an immature 15 year old who, you know, you think at that age, you know, if I was going out with him, I could change him like everybody. <laughs> but I do think like watching it, um, for me, it's more of just being 22 and 23 and trying to figure out who you are and, 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 you know, having this fake bravado almost, because I do feel like there are moments where you can tell he's actually very insecure. And, and like, I feel like it's a very vulnerable performance in a, in a, in a really great way. Um, And I don't know why we can't have flawed characters, why everyone gets, you know, so upset about people. Like that's what makes movies interesting, you know? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and I think, I think the the film sort of plays into it by creating the the duet the the dichotomy that that Liliana has to choose one when she ultimately really right. doesn't, which is the smart thing about the script. Right, that's totally true. I wonder if that would have been kind of how it went if it was made today. If maybe she didn't choose either of them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that would be because it. Like she. Is- 
there is a part of it I was watching last night and I was so startled because I think, you know, again, I saw it for the first time when I was like 15. So they felt like very cool, older, like people to me. And she says at one point, I was really going to be something by the time I was 23. And I'm like, oh, so they're not even 23 years old in this movie. Like they're children. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's the thing that everybody forgets too, is like, this is not a, this is not a, a movie about young adults. It's a movie about college graduates. They're, you know, right. like they did, they did their last classes and now they have to figure out who they are. And that's what's so interesting about Ryder's performance. Cause I, I feel like we really need to focus on her for a big chunk of this. She, she is so aware as an actor that she's carrying this generational mantle already after Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and sort uh-huh. of becoming this, this, this whole object. And this was one of her first films back after she took some time off, um, in the in like 1990 and she did Dracula and then this and she's actively trying not to duplicate herself like she's genuinely trying to create a character and I think that's what makes her so interesting in this is that she's rejecting all the ticks and things that she had done before like the big eyes and the and the thing with where she tilts her head down she's just playing a person who isn't a movie star character and I find that just amazing and no one gave her any credit for it because oh it's Winona Ryder playing person her own age in, in a contemporary story. Yeah, it, it's my favorite performance of hers. I I mean I grew up on her like from the film Lucas. Like I watched oh, wow. that. also was surprised by how funny she was. Like and I'm not she's been in obviously Beetlejuice and and Edward Scissorhands but she always is kind of like the dour, darker, straighter person. Yeah. And there's she's a lot of humor in this movie. Like, you know, just it's mostly where she's making fun of herself, like, you know, with the whole thing with the psychic where she's like, you know, so this woman becomes her friend and her her actual friends are out to get her. But like she's so delusional, but it's so funny and she's so in on the joke. And I was like, I I loved that. I love this kind of sly humor this movie had. Um, it was so it was something so appealing to me that I, I don't think I'd seen a lot of before where it, it wasn't trying to spell it out to the audience. It was just, you know, um putting it out there and i i really thought i I had no idea she was that funny yeah it just floats doesn't it yeah i keep thinking i wish she would do another comedy now that i'm like after i was watching it i was like she really needs to do some more comedy where's she been yeah i mean obviously doing stranger things yeah yeah. and the later i was going to say the later seasons of stranger things she's almost playing comedy just because she knows there's nowhere else you, you can go with that material right that's true. That's actually true. But it's sad that no one has given her the opportunity, right? Because otherwise you could just like, it's a sideways comic performance. It's not, it's not overtly funny. No, not at all. But I I mean, I I thought it was really funny. I got a kick out of it. Um, but yeah, I know. I think everything you're saying, I also think, you know, she was so, as far as like the way she was perceived by the public at that time, which was mm-hmm. like, you know, she was dating a lot of rock stars and she was kind of like, I feel like people probably didn't like, they were like, Oh, she's pro-, again, like what you were saying about Ethan Hawke, she's probably just playing herself. Um, which, you know, I don't think was the case at all. But I think when you, when you are performing something that subtly, I think all of them, like Janine Gar- and Janine Garofalo, Steve, Z- you, you, they feel so authentic and real. And people like you know that you could actually 
be friends with that you're like, well, they must be playing themselves. It's that, you know, the performances are so subtle and grounded and genuine. Yeah, there's a naturalism to all of it. And then the film itself is trying a little, maybe a little too hard in post to to jazz it up. But not that the soundtrack isn't great, because it's it's a terrific, again, a time capsule before anyone thought it was a time capsule. It's an, it's a snapshot right. of exactly what was going on. Uh, in the not in like what was it in the not singles sense where you know that film had bombed so badly that everybody thought nobody wanted another look at the kids or another another uh, attempt to take the temperature of, of the, the American teen slash twenty something culture. But it's just is not- that what happened with that? Did it bomb really bad? Singles? Supposedly that was that was the argument against it. It didn't do terribly well. The soundtrack was a much bigger hit than the movie. Um, which is like, again, just a deeply unfair way to assess any film's success. It's not about the money. It's a terrific little film. Um, mm-hmm. And weirdly enough, it's a mirror image. Like it has the Tim Burton cameo that this one doesn't have. So, you know, that, That's true. that thing, that that Burton writer bond is still represented. But the um, the weird thing about singles is that it's only interested in the music because that's who Cameron Crowe is. And right. Reality Bites, the music is the wallpaper. And not in a bad way, it's just a constant presence in the lives of these characters. Yeah, in a way that, like, when it works, I think it really works, though. Like, I I remember that All I Want Is You sequence. I mean, that was, like, the most romantic thing I'd ever seen in my life when I was 15. I was like, like, uh, could you pick a better song? And, oh, my God, like, you know, it totally was, like, mind-boggling to me. But I... And even a lot of the music I didn't know uh, being 15 and like growing up in the 90s, I didn't know, you know, Tempted. I mean, I'm sure I had heard my Sharona, but it wasn't something I was super familiar with. So a lot of it to me was in a lot of the jokes were like that, too, in the movie, like a lot of the 70s jokes. I didn't get those um, initially. (laughs) I was like, what are they taught? What's a pepper? I didn't, you know, stuff like that. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I wrote about Transformers Rise of the Beasts and the new 4K releases of Paramount's Rosemary's Baby, Warner's The Exorcist, and Arrow Video's Ring. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. That's another thing that we can talk about in terms of cultural significance, where something is on TV enough that a new generation absorbs it. I, there was a moment a little while ago where I saw somebody make a Flintstones joke in a contemporary program. I can't even remember what the show was, but it was in the last couple of weeks and it was something fairly new. And I just thought the Flintstones is from the 60s. Like This is so, this is a 60 year old reference in a weird way. And obviously Flintstones never went away. Everybody remembers it vaguely, but there's bound to come a point where like this generation's not being raised on syndication. They they won't understand no. half the stuff that's flying around. Yeah, it's 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 true. It's totally true. And, and they yeah. they look at the movies with 70s references. Mm. Yeah. And which I loved the I love the movie so much. I was kind of like trying to learn what they were, but I I had no idea. Half of them I was like, what are they talking about? Like <laughs> <laughs> 
And yet I know people now who still use writer's line. Like I, I couldn't tell you what irony is, but I know what I see it. That's mm-hmm. never gone away. That's become, I think that's probably the most quoted line in the whole uh, picture. Oh uh, yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. There are actually, I was thinking, um, he, Ethan Hawke at the end has the line where he says, um, there, I have a planet of regret sitting on my shoulders. And I was like, what a great line, man. Like, <laughs> There are also a lot of very, he has a lot of very pretentious lines too, where you're like, all right, buddy, we get it. So it goes both ways with him. Yeah. Which is a great version of that character though. Again, like the fact that it doesn't let Troy off the hook, that he does say stupid, obnoxious things. And he is a little bit of a poser. I mean, he cares about his music, but in a selfish way, I think that the film allows you to see rather than lionizing him for it. And I think that is very real for for people in their early twenties. Mm-hmm. Like I think that you know you're you're still you're still the whole all of your, your all of the heart like the the day to day parts of being an adult um, that start to kind of you know become a little tedious. They haven't completely hit you yet. It's all you can still have all these ideals. Not that you can at any age, but it's, you know, everything's still, you're still kind of a baby in that way where you can hold on to all your um standards and ideals about the world and stuff like that. I sound very jaded. I'm actually not. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. And the idea too of having a tantrum when things don't go your way, which is kind of Troy also in a way that none of the other characters is. And other people are constantly shown to be dealing with heavier stuff, right? I mean, there's the the thing I had forgotten is just how seriously it takes HIV. Um, and how mortally terrified characters are of it, because of course they would have been in 1993 when this was shot. Yes, that's very true. I also thought it was great how, um, how they talked about, uh, homosexuality and like the fact that, but yeah, but the way they handled Sammy's story, I also thought, you know, especially when you're watching that as a, as a kid in the nineties, um, where it, 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 makes it makes something like that very um real and accessible and you know when you're still kind of getting your cues on how to live from 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 pop culture and then the things you're watching it's really it's a really important message that they're kind of putting out there in the world and giving teenagers or you know young people yeah and certainly the idea of a gay character worrying about how his conservative parents will see him uh, hasn't lost any relevance in 30 years. No, no, it definitely holds up. Yeah. I mean, I think the movie in general holds up. There are a couple moments, you know, I feel like you watch a lot of stuff now. You go back and watch, um, you know, as much as I love John Hughes, there are a lot of John Hughes movies where you go back and watch them and you're like, oh boy. Um, there were there were a couple moments here and there in this movie, but in general, I think it, it holds up pretty well, which is which is interesting as well. Yeah. And um the larger media scape, right? The the sense that television is changing, but no one knows what it is yet, which is still kind of happening now, even in the, the way that the latest iterations of, you know, streaming and reality television have, have upended our own ideas. So it's one thing to arrive in a world that's ready for you. And it's another to realize that you have no idea what the world is going to do next, which is, I think, another thing that's, that the film captures that is happening again now in the cycle 30 years later. I, I don't know if I've articulated that properly, but I think it made sense. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And I think that's really true. It's very interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it, it was a time right before I think things started moving very quickly with the internet. Yeah. Uh, there is like a little bit of acquaintance to that, which is kind of nice and, and interesting um, before like, you know, cell phones and the internet and everything blew up where, you know, you still, you still feel like things were kind of being pieced together and, and, and there was like solid, you know, you were listening to solid CDs and there wasn't, you know, it wasn't all in the ether and stuff there that in a way that it is now. Yeah, that's it. It's a very analog film in in a Mm -hmm, lot of ways that we take for granted now. Yeah, for sure. Or you just like, you know, you know, in her, when you see her driving in her car, she just had like CDs and tapes scattered everywhere. And, you know, just like in a way that they just, you just don't do anymore. I guess yeah. some people could. <laughs> well, and even the way that, <laughs> even the way that she ends up being a bit of a disruptor running around with her, with her gas card, with her father's gas card to fund herself. That is so weirdly Silicon Valley-ish now. Like if someone could figure out how to do that collectively, I mean, maybe that is exactly what um, crypto is in a weird way. That is a a very interesting point. I did not think of that. That is a very interesting point. She pulls it off (laughs) until her dad catches her. Yeah, but it's a limited scam, right? She knows it can't last forever, which is the difference between her and and the current situation. Everybody thinks they're just going to bank on it forever. And one more thing, the other thing I I did not want to let go by, because I was stunned to see his name. Chivo shot this. Emmanuel Lubensky shot this movie. I was going to say one of the things I... I he is the first... This movie is the first time I, I think I noticed um, cinematography. And like, I still, to this day... In everything like I I do, I'm just like, I, I, you have to look at reality bites and see the way this movie was shot. And just specifically, I think the scenes that always jump out at me are, are actually the ones at the gas station where she's just like, she's in this red shirt and he just has this halo around her. And just, he, he, he made this movie so beautiful. And, and I think like there's a, a romanticism to it that I, you know, I don't even think when you're watching it, especially as a teenager, you don't even realize why it feels kind of so magical in a way. And then, you know, looking back on it all these years later, I was like, Jesus. And I think I was reading that it was like his first American film and he didn't even really understand the film. Like he was kind of like I he said he didn't realize it was a comedy. Like he was just like, I don't know. Like, and I'm just like, it makes it even more interesting. I thought like that it was shot so romantically. And maybe that's because he didn't realize it was a comedy but i mean what a gorgeous movie like it's gorgeous it is remarkable it was actually his third u.s film and i only know this because i'm a cinematography nerd the first one was this absolutely forgotten kidney stealing thriller called the harvest with miguel ferrer which i saw on video way back then because i'm old and (laughs) isn't bad uh and then he made an uh kind of this ensemble anthology thing called 20 bucks which no one okay. remembers either, but had an amazing Maybe cast. Maybe they said it was his first American. It was probably yeah, his first studio picture, yeah. But it is, it's like bizarre to look back. I was just sort of skimming the cast list yesterday and realizing, oh yeah, none of these people has won an Oscar, but oh, look who has. And then it's like, oh no, he has three of them. I was going to say, he didn't he win them like back to back? Yeah, and good for him. Every, every like beautiful movie, you're like, oh, yep, shot that one, shot that one. It's like Birdman, Gravity, everything is him. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's such a beautiful film. Like uh, there's so many shots in it that are just gorgeous. Um, And I think add to the whole, you know, like I said, that whole like feeling of like this romance that there was to the film Um, and the way she, Winona Ryder was shot, just like, I, I don't know that there's any movie I've ever seen her look this, that stunning and just, you know, just beautiful, beautiful camera work. Yeah. I mean, she was just, yeah, there is, there's this inclination that I don't, I like, I, oh, she was like a porcelain doll. She has huge eyes and and this pale skin and all the period films she was in sort of play that up as well. But here, you know, as you said earlier, she's just kind of playing herself and she's radiant and it's just like yeah. you see a comfortable human being. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally true. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it was necessarily good for me because I look nothing like that at 15. And I was like, well, that's clearly the ideal of what everyone needs to look like. But, um, you know, that wasn't her fault. <laughs> no, exactly. You can't blame her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know we have a limited window of time and I didn't want to let Sick Girl get away, but um, I do want to kind of transition into the idea of casting because this film has such a stacked, incredible cast. And then you clearly made sure with your first feature that you were going to make every single role pop as you go. So, I mean, was Reality Bites helpful in that way too? Was it instructional in terms of lining up a cast? You know, what's funny. The thing that, and I've read, I've, I've read a lot about, you know, a lot of reviews and stuff on Reality Bites and, and something that, I don't think people have touched on that. I I realized when um I was when I was you know prepping Sick Girl was I think the thing that really had the most impact on me in this movie is the friendships, um the the you know the foursome the friendship you know the four of them and their and the familiarity they had with each other and and the way they talked to each other and um you know the scene at the, the mini mart where they're dancing and just I I. I felt like I knew them and I was friends with them. And I, I said a lot when we were, when we were shooting sick girl to, to, to my DP, I was said like, you know, I really want the audience to feel like they're the fifth friend. And that I feel like was something I felt very like reality bites felt like it was mine. Uh, do, you know, the, you know, that kind of like possessiveness you kind of get when you when you find something you love. I felt very much like that was mine, like those were my friends. And I and I and I think, you know, more so than anything, that's why I, I identified it and and, it, and loved it. And it, it meant so much to me, I think. Um, and I think it's also, you know, you hear a lot growing up about how I'm totally not answering your casting question, but I'll get there. But you 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 hear a lot growing up about how, you know, when you graduate and and and, you know, you have to like enter the real world, your friendships, you know, they don't last and things go away. And and I, I think even as a teenager, it was comforting for me to see like that there's that's not the you know, the, you find ways to make it work. And it's and it's still you can still have that closeness where your friends feel like your family. I do think that changes a bit as you get older, but um, but yeah, I think that had a huge impact on me that that just the relationship between the foursome um and how close they were. Um, as far as casting, I I mean, I I don't know that I thought of reality 
quite specifically, um, but I do feel like there's something that they do in this movie, which we we mentioned a little bit before, where there's no small role um, that I think is really important, where it's like, you know, even and they they specifically in this movie got like great cameos, but I, which I don't necessarily think is always necessary. But like, you know, David Spade playing that like, you know, fast food worker or just those, you know, I think it's very important that every role pops a little bit. Um, so I do in everything I cast, even the things I'm not like directing and working on, I try and keep that in mind. And I also keep that in mind as a writer. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a small role. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, how do you cast for chemistry? I guess would be my question, which applies to sick girl and all and pretty much everything too. Like, how do you, when you're working individually with actors, casting them individually, sometimes off self tapes and all of that, how do you figure out who goes well with whom? I don't know that I have an answer for that. I, I don't know that there is it's a feeling and it's an energy. And I don't know that it's something that I could say, like, you know, there's, there are these specific things. Um, I think what helps is trying to, to give those, give the actors a chance to establish some sort of relationship. But, um, so it doesn't feel, um, so they have, you know, it feels a bit more authentic, but, I don't know. I think that's something like one of those qualities that you just know it when you see it. I, I, I it's tricky. Um, I think it comes with experience, mm -hmm. and it's not even like I'm always right. You still sometimes you mess up, but uh, you know, I don't know. That's a tough question to answer. Chemistry's more a feeling, I feel like, than anything else. My thanks to Jennifer Krim, whose first feature, Sick Girl, is in U.S. theaters and available on demand throughout North America this Friday, October 20th. Thanks also to Caitlin Fritz. She knows what she did. You can find Jennifer on Twitter at Jenny Phila, J-E-N-N-I-E-P-H-I-L-A, and you can find Reality Bites on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment and streaming on Stars in the U.S. and available to rent or buy on various VOD services in North America. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme songs by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>